3: Monday morning the 16th of January Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM The far right is on the internet telling lies about immigrants stirring up anger in people infiltrating local communities with racist fascist propaganda that has resulted in the angry protests at immigration centres that we've seen over the last couple of weeks
4: These are individuals very very small uh, in number Uh, They find influence through uh, social media and then they wish to bring out numbers through false information and and creating fear and concern in the community.
3: The Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, was speaking on Friday about some of the well-known internet warriors, if you like, who want immigrants to be sent home and campaign under the banners... Ireland is full and Ireland for the Irish.
4: They are driven by prejudice, it has to be said, and we are very aware of that. We are very aware of the risk to public safety and our responsibility in terms of preventing crime, gathering intelligence, they all come to the fore and we are conducting our inquiries as you would expect.
3: Indeed, these are well-known troublemakers who are stirring up hatred. Most of us do expect the Gardaí to be monitoring their actions.
4: Well, you have to look at the character of what's happening and it's around individuals Uh, And even to call them groups is probably not a description that applies. They are individuals who coalesce uh, around others with similar outlooks and they find each other in social media. And we are not unique in facing this problem. This is right across Europe. uh, And we've learned a lot of lessons then from our colleagues across Europe uh, on how to investigate these matters.
3: And like those other far-right groups in Europe, the people driving an anti-foreigner rhetoric have sinister motives.
4: A small but sinister element
5: are attempting to sow division in communities across our country. And whilst we did see protests, relatively small protests, in a number of locations last night, we also saw many communities speak out against those protests and say, that is not in my name. And we saw many people on a cross-party basis say this is not in our name either.
3: That's the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, articulating what we've seen here locally. People have concerns. No, it's not an ideal situation. Yes, there are many questions, but people for the most part understand the terrible reasons for immigrants fleeing their home country and coming here to seek international protection. And that's despite the campaign of hatred orchestrated online by right-wing fascist racists.
4: We are gathering information on individuals who in the background have a more sinister agenda and I wish to use this for their own motives and their motives are not good their motives uh, could be described as being far right and our investigations and inquiries are ongoing in respect of them but again we have to wait and see what happens if there is a breach of the criminal law then obviously then we will act in terms of reporting the matter to the DPP
3: that's the guard commissioner drew harris once again let's speak now to jesuit priest father peter mcverry a very good morning to you peter thanks for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning we've seen ugly scenes in different parts of the country over the last few weeks uh, and Ballymun, no exception to that uh, where you are, you want to see an end to these type of protests uh, outside of uh, the places where people are living
6: Yeah, I think the first thing is that many of these people who are seeking asylum have been traumatised long before they even came to Ireland Uh, they have experienced that trauma and these protests which are happening right outside their windows and front doors uh, are re-traumatizing them again, uh, and I think we need to. Uh, I think that is uh, unacceptable. Uh, one proposal would be that there would be a hundred-meter exclusion zone, such as we have or have proposed around uh, abortion services, uh, to prevent that sort of intimidation. People have a right to protest if they want. Of course, they have, but they don't have any right to engage in threatening and intimidating behaviour right in the faces, almost, of the the people they are, they are protesting mm. against. Can you I imagine the people in
3: Kildare being down. told that somebody was going to burn the hotel down?
6: Well, somebody has been mm. charged in relation mm. to that, yes. But
3: uh, I just mean how people must feel I- inside these buildings when people are outside protesting, and they've nowhere to go because this has now become their home.
6: That's right, yeah. It's it's very frightening, and in the case of Ballymun, they were afraid to come out of their rooms. Uh they were afraid even to look out the windows at the protesters they they felt very very intimidated mm.
3: i heard one and of the children ask
6: are leading this this is not and again mm. the vast majority of people in Ballymun have no uh, support for that sort of behavior at all mm. uh, so it's been led by these small small groups and these small groups they thrive on publicity and if you had a one meter, a hundred meter exclusion zone, the publicity that would be generated by their protest would be much less, uh, and therefore deprives these far right groups of the the fuel that uh, that mm. drives them. I'd also like to remind them that Irish people have been hard em- emigrants in pretty well every country in the world. Yeah. and their irony is that they're saying that these people, uh, asylum seekers, should be thrown out of Ireland. The, the logical is that Irish people should be thrown out of every country in the world in which they have emigrated to. <laughs>
3: mm, mm, yeah, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I think the Irish probably have received a, a different welcome, certainly in most parts of the world, and uh, welcome that... Uh, the immigrants here have received from this small cohort of people who are really causing a, a, an awful lot of trouble uh, i mean i think you're probably talking about the potential for years of, of trouble in the mind of a, a child in Ballymon who asked if they were going to come in and shoot us
6: yeah it's uh, yeah the consequences the long term consequences uh, could be uh, devastating particularly for for children but hopefully these protesters the far right groups are tiny they're very, very small. They have no support. Uh, they're doing this to generate support uh, by creating fears. Uh, I would say, you know, to those people who who accept, who who, who feed into the fears. Uh, if they do create fears among local residents, my response is the best way to get rid of those fears is actually go into these centres and meet the residents meet the asylum seekers who are in there mm. once you meet them your attitude changes Well there
3: was a lot of and fear I... in Tarram and Fecon, uh, up to last week about a group of residents that had arrived in the village and we took the radio programme out there met with the lads all wonderful uh, group of uh, people who want to integrate as part of the community and want to work in the community want to uh, become friends with people if that's possible or participate in local activities or, or sports and they made that all that very clear on the radio, and I, I think that brought people around. And during those conversations, somebody said that when groups come into localities like this, there should be a meet and greet to defuse the fear that people have, and indeed the suspicion that they have of the unknown. Uh, make the people known to each other.
6: That's right. Yeah, it won't convince the hard the hard right, <laughs> no uh, ideologues, mm. but the 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 fear is often the fear of the unknown. The fear of what could happen mm. and the best way to dispel that fear is actually to go in and and meet the people that changes everything and again if people feel respected if these asylum seekers feel that they're welcomed they're going to treat people uh, respectfully mm. but if they feel that the community doesn't give a damn about them the community doesn't want them well why should they give a damn about the community so I think the solution is let's, uh, let's engage with the, uh, the people and uh, that dissipates the vast majority of fears for most people.
3: Okay, uh, there seems to be a, a pattern uh, to the way these groups go about selling their message. They also say we're not opposed to genuine refugees. Uh, they use the same terminology for the people that they are opposed to, which is because they're men of military age and what are they doing here anyway and all of this sort of thing. Uh, and then they talk uh, about some of the social issues, the, some of the problems that we have in this country. You know better than anybody how severe the housing crisis is. Is in this country and we have these groups pitting one set of people uh, against the other uh, and uh, they're taking a situation that people are already anger about, angry about uh, and they're exploiting that, making people more angry and then targeting that anger uh, uh, to those who are seeking refuge in this country.
6: Yeah, I think people are right to be angry about the housing situation, about the, the, the inability of the health service to, to meet their needs, but that anger should be targeted at the political system not at the asylum seekers. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, totally the uh, displaced. but of course they won't they won't uh, they won't channel that anger towards the politicians uh, because that's much more difficult to do. It's much more uh, and much less effective than what they are doing at the moment. And they're not just targeting men of military age in Ballymun, there are families in that hotel <laughs> and children who were terrified at what was happening uh, outside their outside their window. So it's it's not just there. There is this misinformation going on all the time. Mm. We have these men who are likely to rob you and hurt you. And uh, and as many of the Ukrainians now are working, I think it's Mm. ten thousand Ukrainians here who are actually working, paying, uh, contributing to the society, uh, to Irish society, paying their taxes. Uh, So it's. uh, yeah, it's total misinformation that mm. he's writing. Oh,
3: and these and, and downright lies on occasion. I mean, I, I think it's been said in a, a few locations that somebody who stabbed somebody in Killarney is now living in one of uh, the refugee centres, whether that's uh, in terman Fecken or in Ballymun or the East Wall. And of course that's not true. I mean, if anybody steps back to think about something like that for half a second, uh, the, it, it's not... Possibly true. Of course, if somebody uh, did something like that, they'd be under arrest uh, and in custody until they're tried for their actions. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. Almost every
6: day in the papers we read about somebody being stabbed. Mm. And it wasn't a foreigner who was stabbing them. It was some other Irish person who was stabbing an Irish person. So... uh, creating that uh, that fear is, is totally uh, misplaced and totally unacceptable.
3: What is the motivation behind this vile hatred? What are these people seeking to get from stirring up such anger?
6: Well, I don't know any of them, so I'm not sure, but I think what they want is uh, political credibility. I think they want to boost their political uh, uh, status and political uh, acceptance or... Uh, Knowledge, the knowledge of people of these right-wing groups, I think they would be hoping for. I think they may have already tried to uh, win elections at local level, have been very unsuccessful.
7: Mm-hmm. I
6: think they're looking for political credibility and uh, support from some elements of the public that might get them into political office.
3: Mm, and tapping into issues that are important, Uh, to people. uh, As the Guard Commissioner said earlier, this is happening uh, across Europe. Uh, Conor Gallagher, the crime and security correspondent in the Irish Times, wrote extensively about uh, these right-wing groups over the weekend. uh, And he was reporting that uh, there's links now with groups in the United Kingdom, a white nationalist group called Patriotic Alternative. uh, And they're sharing ideas and they're sharing tactics. These are the kind of uh, messages and the way they message get their message across to people that sort of, well, we're not uh, opposed to genuine refugees, which immediately makes you think that the people uh, they're protesting against aren't genuine.
6: That's right. And uh, I think, I mean, we've always had these uh, extremists. Uh, they've always been there in every society and every age. But social media now has allowed, given them a platform to spread their ideology, to spread their fears. Uh, in a way that never happened in the past, and I think that's why we're seeing such a rise of extremism in uh, in, in many countries. We've seen it in America, we've seen it in Brazil, we've seen it in France, we've seen it in Germany, <laughs> seen it in Sweden, seen it in all countries. There's this populist right wing mm. extremism has been uh, has been growing. Still very small, thankfully, in Ireland. Uh, but it it is growing around the world and the growth is uh, funneled by through social media.
3: Mm. Uh, And what do you think to... uh, What would you say to some people who who think, well, you know, um, I I don't want to be associated with that uh, vile hatred uh, that they're talking about on the radio, but uh, there is a point to some of this. Um, There's a, a lot of questions that I have. Uh, Because I think there probably are genuine questions that people uh, should be asking, because this is a huge challenge for all of us.
6: It is. There are genuine questions about the level of uh, services that are available Mm. in this country. That question existed long before uh, the Ukrainians or the large number of asylum seekers that we've seen recently coming. That's a genuine uh, question. And the fear is, it's going to get worse. You know, we have, uh, we just do not have the accommodation for asylum see- for the level of asylum seekers and Ukrainians that are coming. Three into two doesn't go. We simply don't have it, and I think that's a huge political problem. But the anger and the. Uh, uh, that people may experience, the resentment they may experience that not being able to be housed mm. should be directed at the political system and not at the vulnerable asylum seekers uh, who are not responsible for causing the problems.
3: And can I ask you, Peter McVerry, uh, as a priest, how you feel uh, uh, about people uh, who hate other people simply because of the colour of their skin, their religion, their ethnicity, or, because uh, they were born in a different country, and not only have they got that hatred themselves, but uh, they're inciting hatred in others. That would seem pretty evil to me.
6: Well, it's it is evil, of course it is. <clears throat> it's totally contrary to the Christian gospel, and totally contrary to pretty well every uh, organized religion in the world. Yeah, every religion in the world has uh, has 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 this moral code: you love your neighbor. Uh, now that uh, so it it is it's, it's totally unacceptable from a moral point of view. It's and people who are, have that uh, hatred and resentment at people coming into this country, uh, they should not be allowed to call themselves Christian, and they should be called out by the by the Christian churches <coughs> and their ideology totally rejected. I'd like to see very strong statements from all the churches and from the other religions in Ireland uh, condemning what uh, these people stand for and what they're trying to uh, promote because uh, it is totally un- unacceptable, both from a moral and uh, uh, and obviously from a legal point of view as well, I think.
3: Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts and opinions with us. It's very much appreciated. That's Jesuit priest, Father Peter McVerry.
1: Michael, Michael Reid
3: on, on LMFM. let speak to Labour's spokesperson on finance. Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and the East. A number of issues to discuss this morning, but maybe we can take up from where we left off there a moment ago with Father Peter McVery talking about these exclusion zones, safe zones, similar to what people would have heard about outside of abortion providers, that there should be safe zones of 100 outside of these buildings that are providing accommodation to asylum seekers. What what, what are your thoughts on that?
8: Yeah, I, I've heard uh, the discussions about that. I didn't hear what Father McFerry had to say, but uh, I would imagine that he um, may have been quite positive towards that idea. Um, first thing I'd say, Michael, it's quite sad that we are in a situation where we feel that we as a society have to feel like we need to take those kinds of actions to uh, insulate and, and protect people from some of the hatred that they have experienced over the last uh, period of time, uh, whipped up on social media, and um, people showing up outside accommodation centres. Um, You know, I've made the point over the weekend to individuals I've been speaking to, local communities across the country, uh, some of them say after being whipped up by um, the Irish Freedom Party and others uh, with the vitriol that they've been spreading and the hate that they've been spreading, uh, say that they are fearful uh, of uh, accommodation centres being established in their communities. Well, the truth is, and uh, credit to you, Michael, for the coverage that you've given and the direct interviews you did with people like Ishmael and Max, who are currently living in the Triple House, you know, the, most, most of the people who are experiencing fear at the moment are those who are fearful and confused about why communities are responding in the way that some communities have uh, to the um, to the development of temporary accommodation centres in our areas. So, look, if that's something that needs to be considered, let, let's consider it. Uh, I think and I hope uh, that the Irish people are better than that. Mm. Uh, there's a, a minority of people who have uh, taken to social media and who have ramped up the rhetoric Uh, About uh, asylum seekers and refugees over the last period of time. It's creating a lot of tension in communities across our country with mistruths, with misinformation, with disinformation, and that needs to stop.
3: Okay, what's happening in in Termin Fekin? uh, Because uh, there was to be a a public meeting, I think, over the weekend, uh, and that was cancelled, uh, and uh, it it seems as though um, some. People uh, had been asking questions, uh, but they're not getting the support uh, that they had expected to opposing uh, the 42 men moving into the Triple House.
8: That's right. I I didn't catch the first uh, part of your question, Michael, but um, I I think you referred to uh, plans that uh, a local uh, Mm. group use the term advisedly, um, that was hastily arranged, uh, set up on on, on Facebook. They appeared to have plans uh, to hold some form of a demonstration, demonstrating about what, I don't know, uh, in front of 42 very fearful men, 42 men are here in this country for 42 very different Mm -hmm. reasons. I'm glad that they have reflected on that. They reflected on that, I believe, because of the um, community response uh, and uh, the fact that individuals and people collectively in the community I said, look, this this is not on. We need a different response. We need a different response. We need to understand why people come to Ireland in the first place, what they're fleeing from. We need to be a welcoming uh, society. We will not accept the rhetoric of the far right. We're just trying to simply exploit uh, working class communities and as usually working class communities, working class people they seek to exploit. If somebody's got an issue, uh, which I have, Michael, with the inadequacy of housing in this country, with the inadequacy of public services, then you know take that protest to government, uh, turf the government out, elect a new government, get involved in real political activism, try and change your community for the better don 't scapegoat people mm. who are even less well off than we are
3: yeah, yeah and when you read this stuff uh, on the internet about it being a banana republic, maybe remember your very recent history, which is uh, one that recalls how many people died for the democracy that we live in and we live in a very democratic uh, country because we have the opportunity, as you say, the tur- to turf the government out if we're not happy with them. Uh, I was uh, speaking on, on the programme last week as well about how some people in Terram Fecken have been arriving at the Triple House and bringing in some small things uh, which have been very welcomed, uh, like a set of golf clubs, uh, because some entertainment and they're the kind of things uh, that people can do if, if you've got a table tennis set or a jigsaw or something, uh, just to entertain the lads. But the lads were also saying that they want to get involved uh, in uh, the community, in the environment, uh, maybe in the tidy towns or, or something like that. Uh, that would go a, a long way, wouldn't it? In terms of people getting to know each other.
8: Well, that, that's right. And breaking down down those kinds of barriers that um, have been, I think, artificially put up over the last period of time. Because, you and know, I'd separate Michael, the, the, the <clears throat> The reaction <clears throat> to the, the creation of a temporary accommodation centre uh, in, in our area—I'd uh, break that down into a number of different groups. I think that there are people who are just genuinely looking for answers: what's happening here? You know, who, who are the individuals? <clears throat> what's you know what are they fleeing from? And, and, and what what is the state doing? From people who are seeking to understand what's happening here are looking for for a clear message from government. And, and, and frankly, the, the you know communication from the department has has not been what it might be, um, and I'd say that that's been the case, that's been the experience of other local public representatives uh, as well. Um, and then you've got people who simply uh, do not want uh, to have um, people who don't look like us, uh, people who don't have our culture, uh, people who uh, have different interests than in us, people who come from different areas, parts of the world. They simply don't want them in their community. And and that's, that's sad. And that's a minority, a very small minority. Uh, a, a minority, I think, that's been sort of that message as well that they're spreading has been articulated and sort of magnified and amplified on, on social media because of the way that social media um, operates. And we don't hear, Michael, on the media about uh, all of the people who have visited accommodation centres to, to engage positively with new arrivals to our community. Mm-hmm. People bring bringing gifts, people are bringing things that, that, that people need. Uh, I know, for example, that, that that a group is being being formed in term, of, fact, and literally as we speak, uh, to try to um, create a more structured response, we will say, to um, engaging uh, with those who are uh, living in, in the community now, uh, who, who may be here for, for a little while, who um, should consider this uh, area to be uh, their home. Um, they're having their applications for uh, asylum in this country processed, they're entri- entitled to be treat- treated with dignity and respect mm. uh, when when they when they are here. I mean, for example, there are people in Tamarack, and I think yesterday who are taking some some of the uh, uh, lads in the uh, centre who are living there now to the beach, for example. No. You know that mm. Tamarack beach is w- mm. one of the most beautiful beaches beautiful. in the country, yeah. an incredible resource mm. that we have on on our doorstep. That uh, unfortunately, some people have said that they weren't really prepared to. Enjoy because they were fearful of what the response would be if they left the centre, and that's no way to live. Uh, and that's that's that, that that that's just simply not right. So mm. so so there are responses evolving now, positive responses to to, to embrace this change, to to, to, to manage this. Uh, and to make sure that people feel welcome and feel home and and Mm. where local resources are made available to them and they can enjoy the amenities that we all take for granted. Yeah,
3: and I know a lot of people have been asking me, uh, do they need anything? Uh, I'm sure that uh, anything that would entertain them, uh, they definitely need clothes. Uh, I don't know if anybody would be inclined uh, to install broadband for them, but I'm sure that would go a a long way to making life uh, a, a lot more... Uh, pleasant uh, under the circumstances, which are far from ideal. Far from ideal, I'm sure, for people in term and, uh, uh, and uh, for the 42 men who have just moved into the village, for that matter. Uh, let's talk about.
8: Could I say, just as important before, myself and my colleague, Councillor Michelle Hall. Uh, will be, we'll be um, visiting the centre uh, very shortly uh, to engage and we, we have been engaging all along uh, especially uh, my colleague uh, with uh, the centre um, You know, trying to get an understanding of, of, of the experiences of the individuals there how the, the centre is being managed and so on and I think that's important and uh, mm. public representatives as well show that kind of leadership and I know this morning at the meeting of County Council uh, Councillor Hall is bringing forward an emergency motion uh, calling uh, essentially uh, on all public representatives not to uh, be tolerant in any fashion of, of hate speech, uh, of um, kind of intimidation that has been experienced yeah. in centres across the country. Those so, of all hues, democratically elected public representatives, unite uh, and yes, uh, call for a better response from government because what's happening at the moment is inadequate in terms of uh, what individuals arriving in this country mm-hmm. are experiencing, and the, uh, you know some communities are entitled to expect. Better information, better quality information. But we are in an emergency. What we need to see happen over the next period of time is the development of, you know, modular and um, building that kind of mm. approach uh, to uh, ensure that uh, people who are arriving here.
3: Yeah, that this is a, a temporary right. situation. Yeah. yeah, this is a temporary yeah. D- during an emergency, exactly. and we all pull together. Mm-hmm.
8: And, yeah, yeah. We, we just, we, we, at every level yeah.
3: we need our well. I, I think when you're in the Triple House later on uh, you'll uh, find uh, that that is not a, a place uh, for any kind of hate speech because the atmosphere is so laid back uh, and relaxed and friendly, just a, a nice bunch of lads. Uh, we were going to talk to you this morning about uh, Damien English's resignation and we'll do that in a, a moment but this has taken a curious twist with a senior minister now uh, apologising for not following uh, ethics legislation Legislation uh, And uh, Pascal Donoghue, uh, apparently during uh, the last general election campaign in 2016, uh, had six people uh, put up posters during his campaign. A businessman, Michael Stone, paid those six people €1,100, uh, which should be seen as a donation to the minister's campaign. Uh, and the Minister has uh, apologised uh, for what he says has been an oversight. We'll hear just a, a little bit of what Pascal Dunne, who said to reporters yesterday.
8: In retrospect, I should have amended my election expenses form at that point to take value of the €140 euro of the commercial value of a co- corporate vehicle for the hours used. This was a clear oversight on my part which I acknowledge, I acknowledge and apologise for. Having been made aware of the payment to the individuals in recent weeks, it is clear to me that the value of the labour provided to the amount of approximately €917 Euro should also have been declared in my election expenses form.
3: All right, uh, that's uh, Minister for Public Expenditure. Uh, Pascal Donoghue, uh who oversees the work of SIPU, the Standards and Public Office Commission. Uh, do you think the Minister has done a- enough uh, to put this to bed, Jed Nash?
8: Um, we will only know that, uh, I think, over the next uh, couple of days. Um, th- this There's no point in me saying that this isn't concerning. Uh, Michael, it is. It's concerning because um, I will have been of the impression that Minister Donoghue would have been well aware of the years of his responsibilities in terms of declaring interests, donations and so on, that uh, all the public representatives, whether they're local or national, have to declare, in one case the SIPO if you're a TD or a senator, uh, or to the local authority if you're a local election candidate or successfully elected councillor. He was the Minister uh, for Public Expenditure and Reform from 2016 to 2020. He is now Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform again uh, since Christmas when he was first made aware of this, what I might describe as an error, and that's the way he described it, in 2017 in relation to the um, provision of a van as a, as, as a service. He put a monetary value on that and, and amended the statement to, to SIPO. Uh, now it's come to light that, uh, in fact, um, Things have got even more complicated. The minister ought to have been aware back in 2017. He may have been more curious than he seems to have been. Uh, when he looked at his um, his returns again, uh, he could have made an analysis then that look. You know, this appears to be. <clears throat> Uh, uh, considerably more in terms of the, the the value of a donation by way of a service, and I need to declare that too. He seems to be making the case that <clears throat> this donation, without losing the, losing your listeners, Michael, uh, and there are differences here in terms of thresholds applied in terms of what you declare and what you what you you are not, not obliged to declare. He seems to be making the case now that this was a, a donation that was made to the uh, Dublin Central Fine Gael party and not to him personally. Now that remains to be seen, and that's that's. To be determined by the Stanford Public Office Commission. That is an interesting distinction because that means the, tre- the thresholds are lower for an individual uh, than a party or different thresholds. And um, so w- we will see what emerges over the next period of time. But you know, my concern here is that, you know, he's he's, he's recused himself, he stepped back from any involvement now in the reform agenda. You know, in twenty fifteen um Brendan Howland, when he was Minister for Public Expenditure Reform, introduced what's known as the Public Sector Standards Bill. That would have given CIPO real teeth to investigate issues like this and initiate investigations of their own as It stands at the moment. Civil has to wait for a complaint from, from a member of the public, from an individual, before they can actually uh, carry out uh, an examination of, of, of the issues. Uh, there are a range of different reforms that Brown had proposed. Uh, eight years on, we're still waiting for those reforms to be introduced. The Minister, Minister McGrath, who is now Minister of Finance, was Minister of Expansion Reform until mm. Christmas, Uh, replied to me at the end of the year and said, we're going to bring in this new ethics bill that you've been looking for for years uh, in the first quarter of 2023. But now the minister with responsibility for standards and public office uh, has, uh, it appears, got himself into a bit of difficulty. Uh, He has decided to recuse himself from any engagement with the Standards and Public Office Commission outside of the engagement he'll have to have with them about his own complaint. Where stands now the ethics bill? Mm. who's going to be responsible for that this is urgent I mean Mm. we've seen a series of issues emerge over
3: the well, last Well, not months. Pascal Donahue by the sounds of things because he's recused himself from uh, the workings of, of that. Uh, but it sounds like you want more answers. Uh, there's clarity needed on this yet. Uh, and it comes on the back of Damien English's resignation for, for, for <laughs> not fitting out a, a form correctly, forgetting that he had a house. Uh, the doll will resume o- on Wednesday. Will you also be looking to hear from Damien English?
8: Uh, I, I, I would support calls by <coughs> other opposition members to uh, request Minister English to make a, a statement. Uh, I think there are still some outstanding matters that would be useful for 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 um, Deputy English to to address. Uh, I mean, what, what we what we learned last week just is not good. It's not good. It's disappointing, quite frankly. And um, Jamie himself has accepted that. He has fallen short of the standards that um, the public would expect, and the standards that we're entitled to expect from from uh, from ministers and public uh, representatives. And he had, he had, had decided he was right, he was correct uh, yeah. to 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 resign. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the the, the first thing I thought about uh, when I heard about this um, situation was the people that I work with on a daily basis in East Main and the people across yeah. County Lyle as well who are seeking to um, develop reasonable accommodation for themselves in their own community uh, and uh, are always absolutely upfront and clear about what they possess in their own ownership and what their local need is and so on and often even when they go through those very challenging Mm. um, barriers uh, that are rightly placed down uh, in in, in law and by way of regulation, they often find that they then don't um, succeed in securing planning permission. Um, So I think people across the county would be reflecting and saying, look, that's not been, my experience has been difficult, my experience has been challenging and...
3: uh, I think people would like an explanation I think people would like to hear from Damien English and of course Damien English is welcome to speak to his constituents uh, through this radio station and I'm sure there's many other mediums uh, who would be happy to facilitate uh, an interview or to hear what the former minister has to say at this stage. We're over time now though so we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning as always. Labour Party TD for Loud and Me These Jet Nash Michael
1: Michael Reid on LMFM
3: we were talking about buses uh, last week. Uh, indeed, uh, we were talking about them uh, over the course of uh, the last couple of weeks, a conversation that started uh, with why the 100X from Dundalk to Dublin Airport is always late a half an hour late uh, and I'm sure a half an hour late when it arrives in Dublin city centre we did hear uh, from a a listener uh, who told us uh, that they had called into the bus depot in Drogheda uh, to ask about Stephen's Day service and they were told it would be a Sunday service and when they went for the bus there was no bus uh, they missed their flight and they lost a lot of money as a result of that Uh, that same caller back in touch with us saying that uh, the rules are made up as you go. Uh, this time, uh, the complaint is about the 101 service to Dublin because it also calls out the airport. Uh, however, if you buy a return ticket on the 100X, your ticket is not valid for the 101, even though you're using the same company for the same price to the same destination on one occasion my partner and i were coming from the airport and as the 101 was available earlier than the 100x we took it from the airport to the bus station in Drogheda. It took one hour and 40 minutes. I fail to understand the logic behind the fact that there are seven stops for the 101 in Balbriggan, which is also served by Dublin Bus. That's Paul in Drogheda and thanks for getting back in touch with us, uh, Paul, for that matter. I I think there's uh, certainly some questions about uh, the reliability uh, of uh, some bus services and indeed the timetables that they're supposed to be running too. Somebody in touch with us uh, saying uh, that uh, the demonstration, I think, in Ballymon was taken over by others with a national view, which drowned out, oh, oh, of Carlingford, it drowned out the people of Carlingford. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, I did uh, see. Uh, a text earlier on from the same person who was saying that they were part of a group of concerned locals who attended the demonstration in Carlingford in November. We're not right-wing or politically associated in any way but we have concerns and there's a lack of communication and integration for refugees into local communities. I'm sure that there's a lot of truth in that but go and knock on the door and ask to speak to people. It's a lot better than standing outside uh, with Tricolour is asking people to go back to where they came from when we all know or should know that that's impossible. Anyway, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about that app- appalling video i don't know if you saw the video but my god it would frighten the living daylights out of you if you saw these fellas sulky racing on the m3 uh nick killian is uh, the kihirlikov at mead county council and on the line and very good morning to you nick and thank you indeed uh, for joining us the minister for justice it seems was shocked by what he saw i'm sure you were equally shocked uh, what do you make of what happened Hello, Nick. Now, we've lost the line to Nick Killian. Uh, I'm not sure if you have seen the video, but it, it was online, uh, And there was a fellow, uh, the video came from behind the fellow who was driving the horse. And my God, he whipped that horse so hard and so vigorously and so consistently uh, that that in itself was very upsetting to watch. But the idea of horses on the motorway, uh, late uh, at night. Uh, the Minister, uh, as you know, uh, has spoken about this, asking for anybody with information to come forward on it. Um, we're trying to get Nick Killian back on the line. While we do that I might uh, go back to some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us. Uh, Michael in Navin saying that maybe of uh, the, so, some of the anger Uh, should be at over how 7,000 social houses have been refused by people which is disgraceful. People need to look at themselves before blaming the government uh, for everything. Thanks for that, Michael. Patsy in Carrick uh, says in the late 50s and the 60s in London, there were notices saying no blacks no Irish need apply and do not forget all of uh, the awful Irish jokes as well Irish immigrants did not have it easy uh, there was a line missing uh, from uh, that uh, Patsy it used to say no blacks no dogs no Irish and, and in that order thank you for your text if you have been in touch with us by the way if you want to make comment our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie now I think we do have Nick Killian Kahirlock of Mead County Council on the line Uh, and uh, thanks for coming back to us uh, Nick I'm not sure how the line fell out in us there but thanks as I say uh, for your time with us uh, this morning I'm sure like all of us who saw that video you were shocked by the scenes of sulky racing on the M3
6: Unbelievable and to think that it's happening on our on our national motorways um, just really unbelievable and the way the horses were actually treated themselves as well totally unacceptable it's despicable and we all know sulky racing takes place, but what uh, is on video is just, well, it's just horrible. And the poor horses. Um, and, you know, the danger that this can cause to motorists, I know it was Sunday morning, quiet day on the roads, but nonetheless, people could have been travelling.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: do lots of things and
6: run across roads, do do anything and create an accident and kill somebody. But these people don't seem to care. Mm. Um, I'm
3: sure you'd echo what the that, Minister said about somebody coming forward with information, if they have any, to try and yeah. uh, get these uh, people in front of a, a judge and maybe see fewer incidents of this very, very dangerous behaviour.
6: Well, I hope they do uh, and that somebody may have dash -cam uh, evidence and if they have, please bring it to the, to the your nearest guard station and show it to them, and uh, let's see what we can do about this. Uh, I also see Minister Pippa, Pippa Hackett um, is also uh, calling on our government colleagues to stop this behaviour. How you stop it, I simply don't know. Um, if people do the, these sorts of things early in the morning, uh, on a Sunday morning, um, we we can't have guards everywhere. Um, but this is not acceptable, totally unacceptable. It's creating uh, road, uh, road. it's breaking every law that's there from a road safety perspective and the motorists are being put in danger.
3: Not acceptable. Well, that's it. I mean, it's so dangerous. It really isn't acceptable. Uh, thanks uh, for making comment on that. Uh, you're joining us uh, this morning to talk a- about applying for planning permission. Uh, This follows, obviously, uh, the resignation of uh, Damien English uh, as a a Minister of State uh, for forgetting about a house that uh, he was the owner of, or at least uh, he didn't fill out uh, the form accurately to reflect that uh, this house uh, existed. Uh, Is that something that happens regularly, or how does it happen, or how does it go unnoticed for as long as it did?
6: Well, obviously, I'm not going to comment on... on, uh David situation whatsoever, other than to say that there is a process, and the present process for applying for planning uh, in County Mead comes in under the County Development Plan, uh, Section 9 of the County Development Plan. It's a very strict process, it's a very open process, and it's a very transparent process because once you apply for planning application, anybody or any member of the public are free to go and look at a particular file. There are two reasons for giving rural planning. One is what's called housing need, and the second one is local need. Uh, and then there's all the technical reasons then for why the planner should give planning. Um, my best advice to um, many people who come to councillors for advice in relation to planning, and that's all we do is give advice, because at the end of the day, it's the planners who make the actual final decisions in relation to the, each applicant. The situation is they need a set of planning maps which they can get from the uh, Ordnance Survey Office uh, in the Phoenix Park. They should make, then make an appointment and get and do pre-planning. And I would say to anybody listening uh, to the radio this morning and to, to you this morning, Michael, is do pre-planning. Get advice from the planners. They're there, they're open, they make themselves available. And from a Meade perspective, we're very good at giving advice uh, out through the planning uh, section of, of of the council. There's a set of plans and mm. guidelines that people can look at from a design perspective. Um, the other obvious, very obvious one is the septic tank. I, I always say to people, "Well, if you can't pull the chain, you can't build the house." So uh, that's another aspect that has to be dealt with as well within the planning process. Right. So, with good, with good architects, with good architectural technicians, uh, particularly those that are live in need, who understand the Mead local authority. Sometimes uh, Dublin architects don't have the same handle on how we operate in County Mead or in a rural setting. Um, the, the strict guidelines are there. They're there for everybody uh, to apply. And as I said, it's an open and transparent. It's because... You or I can go in and look at any file, Michael, mm. at any time, as you know.
3: But are applications taken in good faith? Is it as simple as that? Uh, well,
6: they have to be taken. They have to be taken in good faith because they have to be. The forms have to be filled out. The questions are asked. Uh, the opportunity is there to answer that question uh, in 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 the most uh, truthful manner possible. And that there is. Uh, goes to the planner, and the planners mm. take, take quite a, you know, from a, if you go through a pre-planning, one of the questions you will be asked is about your housing need and your local need. Mm. Your local need is that you're from the rural community or that you live within five, seven kilometres of where you're actually applying for. Uh, and to be fair, in, in, in County Mees, I think our average um, grant is around 60% of all one-off rural housing. I, I could be incorrect on, on that, but it's in or around that figure. So many people uh, obviously apply every year and are granted. And yes, there are those who are refused. And they're refused for various reasons. The possibly the sighting of the actual house, the, um, the fact that maybe the percolation area uh, is not acceptable. It's not at the acceptable level to, to, to the local authority. Um, mm. The actual design of the house, but there are guidelines and there's help there for people.
3: Is there consequences though if people make false applications or uh, inaccurate applications?
6: A refusal. Okay. That's main. That's the that's the the one, and and then of course people have that opportunity. That if, for example, B County Council refuse a planning. Uh, application or to grant the, the actual af- application, uh, people then have the entitlement and can go to a board planala and appeal.
3: The yeah, decision of the council. well, if uh, in this case Damien English had been forthcoming and told the council that he had this house uh, in Castle Martin, uh, he'd have been refused planning permission as I understand it. Uh, and you said you don't want to talk uh, about Damien English and that's fair enough but if if there's a well-known individual in the in the 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 locality who makes a planning application do people in the planning office not say does he not have a house up the road I mean this is very local stuff and people have been asking us that question
6: well you must remember that you know in Meads County Council we have a planning section where we have actual planners the planners are not from not A lot of the planners working in County Mead are not from County Mead, nor do they live in County Mead. So they're not going to be aware of where uh, Nick Killian or Michael, you know, uh, mm-hmm. lives, you know. So from that perspective, um, questions are asked on the actual forms so it's based on the actual form itself mm. and that's where the decision comes from and if you go to pre-planning you will be questioned about your housing need and you will be questioned about your local need
3: mm. okay um, and should there be a greater con- should there be a, a, a separate consequence i mean uh, if you are granted planning permission and you shouldn't be uh, granted planning permission because uh, you've incorrectly filled out the form should there be a, a, a consequence before doing that, you know, when it gets past uh, the uh, idea of permission, uh, you've been given permission because, uh, as you explained it was the only consequence is a refusal.
6: Well, I don't know what other consequence could be put in place.
3: Retrospectively, uh, when there's something like this is discovered.
6: Well, well, we're in a situation at the moment where the Rural Planning Guidelines, um, they were meant to be published this time last year by the former Junior Minister Peter Burke, Uh, We have a new minister in place now, Ciarán O'Donnell, in in that particular uh, section. And we're waiting on the Rural Planning Guidelines to be published. If people, or if government feel, or if uh, the the feeling out there is that there should be some sort, let's do it through the uh, Rural Mm. Planning Guidelines. So there is that opportunity there. I I believe that they have been uh, drafted, um, but but have, if uh, you
3: fill out the form knowingly wrong, uh, there is no consequence unless you're caught out, isn't it? That's true, Michael. Yeah Let, let, let me uh, read a, a quote to you, "A person building a one-off house cannot afford to be cheeky with the council or to take any risks. These people face the full rigor of the law, and the council comes down on them if they step sideways unquote, uh, and we can uh, attribute that quote to Damien English when he was a uh, Minister for Housing. Uh, but it's not true. The council doesn't come down at all on you. The council does nothing uh, once you've been given permission. Isn't that true?
6: Well, I'm not aware of any um, fine or uh, way of um, putting, giving people some sort of, uh, I'm not I'm trying to find the word, uh, put no, there's not. Not, not that mm-hmm. I'm certainly aware of, and I, I, I'm around a long time dealing with planning, and the, the objective of every applicant is to try and get that planning. Um, in, in relation to getting it or not, refusal is the bottom line. And mm-hmm. refusal, now, if you get a refusal, you can go back in again, depending on the actual uh, severity of the planning report. A lot of people don't listen the advice that they're given either by their architect or indeed by their local county councillor. And they go bullheaded in and still lodge the application. Mm. And I always say to people when it's refused, read the planning report, which is an extended report. It's not just the actual um, list of reasons why you were refused, which is in the refusal letter that you get from the council. If people read the planning report, they are then given exact reasons as to why a particular application is refused. So the information is is out there. Mm. As I said, it is a transparent process from the public's perspective. Anybody can go in and look and check a file. But okay. in relation to um, uh, putting some sort of um, sanction. Sanction, that's the word i was looking for, okay, Michael. Yeah, well. Sanction, I'm not, I'm not aware of it. Okay. Uh, and, yeah. But I think there is an opportunity through the new Rural Planning Guidelines that uh, if the people feel that way that they can do it through uh, that particular process that's gone through government at present.
3: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. As always, that's Nick Killian, Independent Councillor and Kherlikov, of Meath County Council.
1: Michael,
3: Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, 49 year old uh, from uh, Drogheda, Jared Cruz, as you know, pleaded guilty in uh, the Special Criminal Court last week to facilitating a, a gang that carried out uh, the murder of Keen Muridi Woods in uh, Drogheda three years ago. He's Uh, Obviously going to spend time in jail now after a plea that was similar to that of Paul Crosby for the same reason. Another man, Jared Jed McKenna, is also in prison after admitting to cleaning up uh, the crime scene in Rathmullen Park. Where uh, Keen Mulready Woods was, was murdered, quite possibly, Gardi say, by Robbie Lawler, who himself was shot dead in Belfast uh, in uh, 2020. Uh, let's speak uh, to local Sinn Fein TD for Loud and East Mee, the Melda Munster, who's on uh, the line. And a uh, very good morning to you, Melda Munster, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I think people in Drogheda will sleep all the better knowing uh, that Gerard Cruz follows Paul Crosby behind bars.
2: Yeah, I think it would give people some comfort that they can now see that people have been arrested and charged and held to account for their actions and face the full rigours of the law. I mean, that will offer some comfort to people because the people of Drogheda went through hell during that feud, constant fear and trepidation. And it's actually still hard to believe that it got so out of control or was allowed to get out of control. I mean... Even when you think back, you say, God, did that actually happen? We'd shootings in broad daylight. We'd dozens of homes firebombed. We'd mothers terrified and traumatized. We'd children that couldn't stay outside their their homes in some areas. You know, and I, personally, I'll never forget to the day I die the mothers I met in my office. I <coughs> mean, um, they were in such states of distress that it's hard even to put into words. Mm. Mothers that, couldn't even speak they were so traumatised broke down instantly as soon as you sat down with them every bone in their body shaken, they'd been threatened with knives, they had their guns, they had their homes attacked and even remember one incident of um, a mother threatened with a chainsaw at our front door you know, um, it was just horrific and even looking back you actually think how was it ever allowed to get out of control, as out of control as, as, as it got, you yeah. know. Uh,
3: and that, I think, uh, probably uh, was something that was obvious no matter what you were doing in, in Drogheda at the time because there was this constant hum of uh, the Garda helicopter hovering overhead, it seemed, almost all of the time. Uh, with these key players in this feud, now off of the streets, uh, do you think that Drogheda is a safer town? Uh, is this feud over?
2: I mean, you'd love to hope against hope and say that it is, but I, I just have a fear that it's not the end. There's been a recent spate of attacks. I mean, when when the feud was at its height, you had the spotlight, the national spotlight, focused on the feud and focused on Drada. And you had the Garda efforts and you had the additional Garda and the, the Rapid Response Force, I think, or Rapid Response Unit. Uh, and as you say, helicopters and all of that and all effort was put into it. And then you had the lockdown uh, from COVID, which helped insofar as it meant things were relatively under control or it quietened down. There was fewer attacks and threats or fewer extortions. But things are starting to kick off again with recent um, arson attacks, it seems to be simmering up again. There appears to be new gangs forming, and that's how it started originally. There was no attention paid to it when it was simmering there, when there were incidents, and um, it, it appeared to me, and I said it at the time, that a blind eye was being turned to it. Um, but, you know, there needs to be the same focus, the same round the clock surveillance, um, because a resurgence of it and these new gangs and the, the arson attacks and, and that that's the last thing we want to see and it's the last thing that should be allowed to ever happen again.
3: And a recent and very brutal murder for that matter. Um, Keane Mulrady-Woods' mm-hmm. yeah. murder was one of uh, the most gruesome Terrific. murders in living memory. In Rathmullen Park, uh, another... Uh, Murder, it would seem, in Rathbullen Park, uh, that of Brian Reynolds, uh, attacked by four men with hammers. Uh, you, right, yeah. you, want to know why that's not a, a murder investigation at this stage?
2: Well, it it appears, I mean, to have all the hallmarks of a murder, you know. And um, I'll be intend to meet with the chief superintendent due to the rise, you know, incidents of late, but also. Just to see what exactly is going on, because as, as I said, you know, this can't be allowed to, to build up and kick off again the way it has, and for that reason, we need to know that the guardians are across everything, they need to be all over this, every single incident investigated fully with a thorough follow up, so that keep, people can be reassured that this will never be allowed to happen again. I know it's a constant. Fight with, you know, a constant battle with, with drugs. But the feud and the gang war, that has to be curtailed mm. and literally smashed.
3: Well, uh, there's been no impact from uh, what we hear in terms of the drugs trade in Drogheda. Uh, the feud may have died down and uh, some of uh, the better known gangsters uh, dead in, or in prison or on the run. Uh, but the drugs are there and there's new gangs coming up uh, we have had this uh, brutal murder of Brian Reynolds uh, and uh, that uh, would appear to be linked to local gangs uh, and we've had uh, these petrol bomb attacks in Scarlet Crescent in Nuns Walk and on the Bally McKenney Road uh, do you believe that they're linked to the drugs trade?
2: I would believe that there has to be some form of link I mean there, was, there were homes that were attacked um mistakenly that they you know they'd absolutely nothing to do with it, but obviously others were. there was a horrific incident um outside Drahada just before christmas um a home attacked and the the family have fled um but again it comes back to garda surveillance and whether they're they're smaller drug dealers or the, the, you know, leaders in the drugs gang or whatever they are. Mm. As I said, the guards need to be all over this and clamp down on it and, you know, thorough investigations, thorough follow-up all the time to make sure that it never reaches the horrific heights that it did. And I just, I I am just worried when you see the, the attacks becoming more frequent now that, you know, it is kicking off again and that's where we need to know the Garda's plan of action because we Mm. can never ever endure what we endured during Uh, that feud.
3: And we were promised so much Uh, people of the area were promised so much following the murder of Kemal really was there was a huge march uh, in uh, a big demonstration people demanded action every political leader in the country was there uh, and it was all going to happen uh, Drahda was going to be prioritised and so on are you seeing any evidence uh, that work is being done on the ground so that uh, this would become less of a policing issue that there would be less uh, in the way of uh, the drugs trade that Uh, people uh, would be uh, convinced at a a younger age uh, preschoolers, uh, primary school children uh, and so on that there would be reach out projects for them
2: Well I know work is underway. Have we seen the the actual results of that at the minute? Um, Not visible results I would say at this stage um, that you can see. Now I know there was an apprenticeship programme that's um, up at the Dino Road there. I was at the launch of it that was a good initiative to get younger people who are you know dropped out of school no interest in school you know that they could um have an apprenticeship type of thing, and there are the community groups working hard at ground level, but there needs to be a whole lot more done you know to get children to not to take drugs not to succumb to um what you would see as bullies in the community that would kind of you know, put pressure on them to sell their drugs and all that sort of thing. That's there's no visible evidence of that yet. But again, the Gardaí have a crucial role in monitoring all of this and being on top of it. absolutely everything that's happening. Who's dealing? Who they're you know they're getting it from? Who's the supplier? All of that sort of thing. They need to be right across that. So when I, because I work in Leinster House, I'm often going up O'Connell Street early in the morning, and you see it's totally out of control in Dublin. You see young people, totally ashen-faced, looking 20 years older than they are, skin and bone, teeth missing, ravaged by drug addiction. They're, it's like, it's often like a scene from The Walking Dead, and I'm not exaggerating when I see say mm. that. No, I They're mm. dealing openly outside the GPO. Mm. And as people, I've often watched it walking past and look behind me then to see what did I actually see that? Mm. They're actually openly dealing outside the GPO and as people collect their their payment, their social mm. welfare payment, there's fellas just standing around and you actually see them handing
3: yeah.
2: whatever it is. As you know, if, you know, as if, as if nobody can do anything bike. about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Young fellas mm. on bikes scouting mm. the area. Um now you often see that level of addiction on a much, much sc- smaller scale in Drahada. but I know I've often walked over West Street and looked at someone and said, what on earth are they on? Mm. You know, that you could, and we can't allow it to take that hold in Drahada. And that's why I say guards have to be all over this, that, you know, literally right across it. They should, with all the surveillance they've gathered and all the intelligence and information they've gathered throughout the feud, they should now have a, you know, a pretty good picture but I know there's new gangs forming, but they need to be on top of that too, and see who's dealing, where they're getting it, who's the main supplier, you know. And those starting to carry out attacks, it seems like they're starting to grow in confidence again. That they think they can, you know, kick mm. it off again. Okay. And that that just can't be tolerated.
3: No. Okay. Let's uh, hope that it isn't. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today, Sinn Féin TD, for Loud, the least me, the Melon Monster.
1: Michael, Michael Reed
3: on LMFM A survey from the Society of Chartered Surveyors of Ireland has discovered the shocking fact that 40% of residential property sales in the last quarter of last year were landlords selling up and leaving the market. Let's speak to Mary Conway, who's the chairperson of the Irish Property Owners Association. A very good morning to you, Mary, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. I do believe that that is a shocking statistic. Are you surprised by it? I know that it's prompted you to call on the government to act urgently in a way that will incentivise landlords to stay in the market.
5: Uh, Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, No, we're not a bit shocked and we have been seeing it for ages. And um, even in our pre-budget submission, which was back in March, uh, when we did a survey of our landlords, 57% of our landlords in the rent pressure zone planned to sell in the next two years. Um, And I think um, that was back in March. We're looking at the figures now of sales in the last quarter of 2022. And I think the reason that the numbers probably appear a bit higher there is because the landlords were hoping that there was something going to happen in the budget that was going to keep them in the market. It didn't happen. And now we have rising uh, maintenance costs, Mm. uh, mortgage interest costs, and um, no means to offset it. Everybody's stuck in rent pressure zone. Um, So I think the numbers will possibly be higher in the next quarter. Right.
3: Okay. Do your members feel as though they were misled uh, by way of what was said in uh, the run-up to the budget?
5: well we were oh, we were confident we would get something out of it but all we got was something that really didn't make much difference to many landlords which was um got to do with pre-letting expenses um and pre-letting expenses really would be for a landlord who's coming into the market hmm. and we know for a fact there's nobody coming into the market
3: right uh,
5: and what what what
3: are landlords doing if they sell up are they investing in different ways
5: they're not no they're just um well, a lot of them aren't have very little left at the end of it, if anything at all. A lot of landlords would have bought it, um, you know. These would be self-employed guys, your, your carpenters, your plumbers that um, don't have a, a, a company pension, and they bought a property knowing that they could do the maintenance themselves, and hoping that you know when pension time would come that they would have something out of it. But yeah. a lot of those guys are cashing out now as well because um, they're subsidising their mortgages, subsidising their tenants, and you know, leaving themselves short. So mm. it's just a lose-lose for everybody.
3: Right. Um, it sounds dreadful. Uh, how is it so dreadful when the reality of it is is that somebody else is paying your mortgage?
5: Well, some, yes, yeah, somebody is contributing to your mortgage, but I won't necessarily be paying your mortgage. And um, then you have all the other costs on top of it. So if you have one euro, you're paying anything between uh, 51 and 53% back to the government. Mm. So out of that, you have 47 cents left to pay your um, your mortgage, you to pay your tax, uh, to pay your other expenses. If it's an apartment, if your um, your maintenance, you know your fee to the management company, you're paying your insurance, um, and a lot of landlords have are subsidising it from their own private income. Um, whether, it's, you know, out of their PAYE.
3: Why, though? Why, why why do they need to do that? Uh, I mean, if rents are so because high, just, lo- like locally, uh, it's 1500 on average for a three-bedroom house or 2000 in Dublin. Are, are they paying more than that in mortgage repayments?
5: Yeah, some of them are. I know personally my mortgages have gone um, through the roof since September um, with uh, tracker interest rates. It's, it's got really high and I'm paying, um, I wouldn't like to say how much, but I'm paying a shocking amount. Um, over what I was paying before and the interest rates are still going up and I don't know how I'm going to sustain any of it. Mm.
3: Uh, And the rent that you're receiving doesn't cover the cost of the mortgage?
5: Just about, just about Mm. Um, but I have to make cutbacks in other areas so if you know, things need to be. Uh, but that's a, that, Is that not
3: approach. a? Is that is that not, not a, a great deal? I, I mean, when you compare yourself to the people who are renting, uh, they're getting nothing back uh, in return for their money. Dead money is uh, uh, what renting system. used to be described as. Uh, uh, you end up with the asset. You end up in full ownership of the property.
5: In a lot of cases, um, the assets were bought at very high prices at the Celtic Tiger days, mm. and in some cases, they haven't even come up to what landlords paid for them. And there are rents, you know, everybody talks about the high rents. Rents are stuck at 2% right across the country. The only rents that are going up are the new properties that are coming into the market. And when you know that the new properties coming into the market are mainly the institutional investors because Mm. they're not private investors coming in. And our members have properties right around the country in every city and town and village. And we just know from listening to them how much they're squeezed. And we know that some of the landlords haven't put up any of the rents over 10 years in some cases and if a new tenant comes in they are stuck at the same rent so there's very little room to do any kind of refurbishment or get it ready for a new tenant the money just isn't there
3: Alright, um, there's obviously something in what you're saying. If uh, 40% of all property sold, uh, residential property sold, uh, was sold by landlords in the last quarter of last year, uh, and you've called on the government uh, to incentivize people to stay in uh, the market, um, what needs to be done? Do you want to be treated like institutional investors?
2: because that would be lovely
5: because we wouldn't be paying any tax at all. Mm. Um, We'd like that everybody would pay uh, a fair share of tax and not uh, keep the burden on on the the small landlords. Um, Really the whole thing here is the failure of the government to build um, enough social housing, to build any social housing over the last number of years and um, small landlords have been provided. Yes, they've got assistance from the half scheme and that has been a lot of money over the years. But, um, you know, the housing needs to be built and free up housing for other people who are coming in for example and um, a lot of companies now are looking at um overseas companies who are working in ireland work looking at how are they going to bring in their workers mm-hmm. so everybody has been squeezed right through from people being homeless to people coming in to companies Um you know at the moment um i have huge demands to find housing for guys who are working on the children's hospital and we already know um, the slowdown there. Mm. So the whole system is completely dysfunctional and needs to be looked at and and a bit of creative thinking.
3: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Mary, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's Mary Conway, uh, Chairperson of uh, the Irish Property uh, Owners Association, the IPOA. Now uh, some Uh, comments uh, when it comes uh, to the gangs and the drugs, Light Touch Policing says, Breida the public have what they wish for and the answer should be up against the wall and exterminate them. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Another text uh, from David Finnegan who says there is a certain element of dirt that follow these marches around, water charge marches, Crow Park against concerts. These so-called people don't even live in these areas Uh, and David obviously doesn't have much time for them given uh, the other things he says that I can't read out for you on the radio. Ellen says Michael RTDs and ministers are a disgrace every day. Uh, there's another discovery of something that needs to be changed and the record wasn't right. But they seem to keep their big salaries and their expenses. And at the same time, there's people dying on the streets. Uh, Another text or WhatsApp message uh, from Tom, who says, get the commentator and the other 159 TDs uh, out of uh, the doll. They're out of their depths. And that is why... We have such power, poor services in this country. Thanks, Tom, for that. Uh, Somebody else uh, wants to know. Uh, about uh, the repercussions uh, following uh, the incident uh, with Damien English uh, and uh, what's going to happen. Well, I think the repercussions uh, will be that that will be down to the people of Mead West to decide how they vote next. But thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us. If you haven't been in touch with us, as always our telephone number oh four one nine eight three two thousand, Text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Now, given uh, the increase in the cost of living and all of the pressures uh, that there are on government, uh, retired school teachers are worried about uh, the value of uh, their pensions and are calling on the government to maintain parity between teachers' pension payments and salaries that are paid to serving second-level teachers. Susie Hall is uh, the president of the North East Branch of the Retired Secondary Teachers Association or STA. And uh, a very good morning to you, Susie, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. And I, I know that you met recently with uh, some of your colleagues locally, and there is some concern that there's a threat to your pensions.
2: Well, of course, pensions are always under threat, as you know. And for example, during the FEMPI legislation, uh, it, the government dipped quite heavily into our pensions. And we lost a great deal of money, which most pensioners couldn't afford, you know. Mm. Um, But uh, at the moment, and for some time past, uh, pensions are linked to the salaries of serving teachers. um, On a percentage basis, now obviously, they don't get the same salary they didn't expect. Mm. But um, that is a safeguard for us, because if teachers get an increase, then the pensioners would likewise... But if that link is broken, it would be a very serious threat for uh, retired teachers because um, if their pensions remain static and the cost of living is shooting up, as you know, Mm. uh, it will make life very difficult for people relying on pensions as their sole income source. Right.
3: And is it just that experience has taught you to be cautious or uh, cynical or is there something that makes you think that there's a threat to that link between working teachers? Well, no,
2: but you see, it's always a threat because at the moment we have assurances that the parity uh, between the salaries of serving teachers and the pensions of retired teachers will continue for the duration of this um, pay agreement. But that's only a one-year pay agreement. And so every time a pay agreement is negotiated, um, that, that's always at risk. <clears throat> now, we have sought, uh, along with the Alliance of Retired Public Servants, of which we are a founder member, uh, we have sought uh, to get representation when uh, pay talks are in train. Um, so far, we haven't succeeded, but we're not giving up on that. Because, you see,
7: uh,
2: once you're retired, you're not like a a serving teacher. You can't withdraw your labor or anything like Mm. that. And, of course, I know that there's a great deal of talk in the public uh, arena about, you know, gold-plated public service pensions. But nothing could be farther from the truth for many, many of our members. Uh, Firstly, a lot of our members are women. And many of those (coughs) were obliged to give up teaching when they married or had children. I myself lost my job when I even said I didn't actually do it, but I said I was getting married. I had got engaged and I was let go from a permanent job because you could do that in those days. My God. So, yes. Mm. (coughs) So, therefore, as, as your pension is linked to the number of years you have been teaching, we have some teachers on very, very po- poor pensions altogether. Now, in the um, social welfare pensions, uh, of course, the government does, uh, from time to time, they're not over generous either, but the government is conscious of the need to, you know, upgrade those from time to time, and they, they do get the double um Contribution at Christmas and that sort of thing, but uh, retired public servants are not eligible for those pensions, mm.
3: and have very little, uh, as you say, in terms of uh, combating what you might perceive uh, to uh, be threatening. Yeah,
2: there's nothing they can do, really. Yeah. You know, uh,
3: but you, but you are organising, and I think you're looking to yes. hear from uh, retired teachers in the northeast.
2: Oh yes, we 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 are constantly. I mean, the RSTA. We are very active, and we lobby uh, government ministers. And uh, as I say, we were founder members of the Alliance of Retired Public Servants, which uh, is open to all retired public servants, and it's a very large grouping. And um, we are constantly lobbying just just to maintain parity. You know, mm, mm. Uh, our demands are few, but. Um, You see, if you're in a teaching job, uh, you have your trade union to represent you. Um, But once you retire, uh, you still need a lobby group of some sort or other to try to defend your pensions. And that's why we encourage all retired teachers to join the RSTA because, um, you know, they will find there, apart from the uh, uh, advocacy and the lobbying and all that, um, which we do on their behalf, Mm. But it's it's a nice social thing as well. We have mm. 18 branches around the country and um, those branches organise outings, cultural oh, trips good. to mm. the theatre mm. or the cinema. They organise walks in the country. They sometimes organise mm. overnight uh, mm. trips away and so on.
3: I imagine they, there's great collegiality and uh, sort oh, of uh, and a meeting of like-minded people, that sort yes. of thing, as retired and teachers. See, yeah.
2: mm. There are many mm. uh, teachers who are uh, widowed or divorced or were never attached in the first place. And their social life circulated around their school. You know, Mm. schools Mm. have a great social life attached to them. But once you're out of it, all that is gone. Mm. And, you know, as we all know with COVID in recent times, uh, it can be lonely.
3: Okay, I'm uh, running out of time, Susie, if people want to make contact with you. um, Yes,
2: They should look up the website, which is www.rsta.ie. Okay. That's www.rsta.ie. Dot
3: I-E. That's Retired Secondary Teachers Association, RSTA.ie. dot I-E. That's right. Susie, That's thank it. you very much indeed uh, for joining well, us on the programme so today. Much. Susie it's Hall is uh, the president of the Northeast branch of the Retired Secondary Teachers Association. Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
1: The Michael Recho Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.